Now she is, Captain. Isn't she a beauty? Yes, she is, Mr. Scott. Is she ready to go? Aisa. She's ready to go to the stars. This is the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. It's mission to seek out new ideas, find new games, and to boldly bring the awesome to your game. Mr. Scott, Warp 9. I Captain. And now, our host. This is Bruce. This is John. And this is Trav. Welcome to the TriTech Games Podcast, your podcast where you join a secret American government agency and find out, wait, I'm getting transferred to where? Hey, this ain't Kansas anymore, is it, Toto? No, 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 no. Tonight we are continuing Hero 13 and the Second World. To catch you all up again, the Second World Sourcebook is a D20 gaming supplement written by Stephen Palmer Peterson, and it dealt with multi- planar gaming where like bringing fantasy gaming into a modern setting or vice versa and on the first page mr peterson put an open fiction license basically allowing any of the game setting material to be used in other gaming supplements so when i headed up the bureau 13 ogo conversion project i saw that and there were things in it i liked and i saw many other similarities that said, okay, this will work too. So tonight what we're doing is being a Bureau 13 agent in the second world. Now, the second world, geographically, it's pretty much the same as Earth. The, the mindset of, of, of The Hobbit was that of uh, pre-war, pre-war Britain. And it's funny because in the second world, now remember, London is the home of the power of the shadow. And all and all halflings, natural born second world halflings, come from Britain. You see what yeah. that was all done there. They and so your halflings tend to have a little bit darker tone because the power of the shadow has been infused into them. So, so. a halfling shadow warden in the second world setting, oh watch out, stealth is their bread and butter. They got they got stealth that'll put a kender to shame. So that brings the question, okay, so I have a liaison. She's an elf. We, you know, we can't pull the uh, her head caught in a threshing machine in, chi- in, in, in China with her when she comes, goes. <laughs> yeah. So how, uh, first off, are they flagrant elves or are they just pointy ear elves? You know what I'm saying? Flagrant elves. The, elf, the ears, they go all the way to the top of their head? No, the ears, they go sideways about a foot. Oh, oh, anime elves. Yeah. <laughs> I usually do the the Pathfinder D&D elves that just the elves, the ears go to the top of the head. I don't have them sticking out of the sides. So basically they're all wear, they all wear caps when they go to the first world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, see, in the first world, then, you can throw things like, oh, look, a hat of disguise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's where getting a hold of an amulet of disguise comes in handy. 
Yeah, well, remember, you can get them really easy in the second world because magic items are mass-produced. You can go to BlueCon. Now, okay, BlueCon, the blue conglomerate, they pretty much have a very large World Trade Center-esque type building in downtown Manhattan in the second world. Mm. The bottom floor is a giant bazaar. And other companies can rent out stalls to BlueCon, so it's not all BlueCon stuff that can be sold there. You can get cheaply produced mass market magic items. And remember, in the second world, you've had a lot of first world science come over. Techno magic is huge in the second world. And this isn't just something I put in. This is something that just makes common sense. And they even talk about it. You have first world computer scientists all of a sudden realize and mathematicians realize, you know what? I can relate to this whole wizardry thing. The magical notations, like scientific notation, we just learn how it goes, and you've got first world scientists and and whatnot, and they're using raw arcane power to do everything from, oh, I want hot running water in my home, to, oh, look, I've made techno magic power armor. Or more more correctly, this is where the bureau gets its uh, its uh, laptops and cell phones from. You know the ones that always have always have bars. Yeah. Well, no. It, remember, <laughs> I told you House House Usher, the nightclub. Mm-hmm. They have if you can get into House Usher, or if you become an agent, a full blown agent in seven, you get one of those Technomagic's. Uh, well, I have it as a Technomagic smartphone now. From House Usher, they give it to all their agents. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty much good in the City of Runes. Once you leave the city itself, obviously no bars. But while you're in the City of Runes, yeah, that that, and you can even make first world calls. But what I'm saying is that, you know, especially for the Bureau in, in the first world, basically, you know, uh, I always say, you know, when I run a game, if you can't get bars, you're in deep trouble. Oh, okay, yeah, something like that, yeah, because basically you're using something like the astral plane or the the ethereal plane, which mm-hmm. gives email a whole new meaning. Yeah. Um, as okay, as I said, for use of techno magic, and you can probably only get these books at like Noble Knight Games. Mm-hmm. They're from the old company Perpetrated Press, Arsenal and Factory. You can make everything from technomagic weapons, like firearms and explosives, to technomagic power armor and robots, and and they are extremely useful if for running a bureau game. Because if you want your 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 techie or your wizard to start making cool stuff for your bureau agents, those two books I and highly Trav approved for. Any type of modern magic or conspiracy game. As I said, they're called Arsenal and Factory. They're done by they were done by Perpetrated Press. The company is long gone. You can only get the books now from I think it's NobleKnight.com. And that's Knight with a KN. But Noble Knight Games, they have all these old gaming books, and you can get those, and they would fit perfectly in the setting because you can then make the Techno Magic smartphone. Like the one that you would get free from uh, being an agent. Uh, let me finish up reading agents here. Um, 
Okay, as mentioned before, yeah, okay, where did it leave off there? However, agents are expected to communicate with other agents, particularly those in the same office. This ensures that the information they possess doesn't get lost if something unfortunate should happen. Given all this, the agent position is a pretty good one to give player characters so long as the characters possess the right kind of ideology. Since you may want to allow exile characters access to the position, you can simply relax the normal restriction on exiles or provide a scenario in which the characters gain the ability to not suffer from exile, such as getting them to bang or main and it negates exile. Okay. Um, if you do this, you'll likely see a lot more lot more first world adventures in the future. Given the growing supply of modern D20 settings, adventures this should provide a simple justification for transferring back and forth between modern scenarios and high fantasy. Role-playing access. Role-playing access is practically required for this position. You need to remove exile, test for good, and establish a close relationship with an existing agent. Almost all Second World agents will have risen from the ranks of the liaisons. Now, Habrick Seven Agents New York, they receive an office, board, and lodging. They get a small resource pool, and it six IP at level 20, which means uh, about 6,000 gold pieces worth. Uh, Habrix 7 is still working on building up a body of magical equipment for use by its agents. Although you can requisition universal psionic items from a 6th level scion and rings from a 12th level wizard. That stuff you can already requisition. One of the agency's core goals is to develop a stronger network of arcane contacts to help address this weakness. All agents also receive a cell phone paid for by Habrix and maintained by House Usher. Again, Lily there at the chain board, chain smoking like a demon. Problem is, she's there 24 hours, so she may very well be a demon. Yeah. Um, hey, just saying, I read that and I'm going, you know what? I see a Merolith there with six arms just going to town. So, like, like Bernadine, the old Lily Tomlin character. So it sounds like they're on the gold on the gold standard here. Well, yeah, gold pieces. It's it's a member. It's a fancy world. So yeah. You have, you know, copper, silver, gold, and platinum, you know. So, of course, the standard, standard joke is, so is the gold content of their, of, their, of their gold pieces more than the gold content of seawater? Well, gee, we <laughs> have the economics chapter. If you really I would know. hope it would be. Yeah. <laughs> considering there's not much in seawater. Yeah. Reminds me of a was it? it was a uh, what if one of the what if cartoon what if comic books from Marvel? They had Conan showing up in New York City. Threw away paper money, took all the, took all the change. <laughs> took a while to figure. Uh, one gold piece made holy of gold. It is pure gold. Ooh, no! I, and the reason I'm saying that is because it's too soft. You actually want about eighteen carat for gold for coinage. <laughs> But that's you know that's just you know the the, the practicalities of making of making uh, gold money out of a very soft yeah. metal. <laughs> but still, okay, so it's, it's gold. All right, all right, yeah, I, you know, and it, isn't it is it legal to uh, melt down your coinage into little gold bars? <laughs> I mean, you could. I mean, let's face it: if it's gold and they test it, they'll just weigh it and say, okay, it's equivalent weighed to. Ten gold pieces, fine. You just you've got a ten yeah. gold piece bar you just gave me. Yeah, I mean, and these yeah. are these are one ounce bars, which means they're about oh yay, one ounce gold is not very large. 
Uh, so they went on skull pieces. Yeah, I can see someone taking his, you know, I mean, basically this is a, this is another way for the bureau to fund itself. You know, they get gold from the sec from from the second world, and they basically sell it on the market. Oh, here you go. The Central Empire began minting coins well before European settlers first foot set foot on American soil in the first world. Yeah. Over the centuries, increased trade with the first world and the fact that many people of importance in the empire came from the first world led the empire to align its currency with first world currency once a common American currency was established. Uh, trade with the first world dramatically in the 20th century, leading the empire to peg its currency against the U.S. dollar. Most people in the second world will not accept first world currency. Paper money is far too easy to counterfeit with magic and even more mundane versions of counterfeit money would yeah. be hard to detect. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, yeah. I mean, that's a problem. Ooh. Ooh, large organizations like BlueCon, ACI, and whatnot, Solstice, and those who do significant business with the first world may accept first world currency, though they'll typically charge an exchange rate fee of about 5 to 20%, depending on your trustworthiness and how much they like you. I like so, yeah, if, if, if you go to, let's say you get shunted and you end up in, in the city of runes, and all you got on you is a gold watch and $200 in cash, yeah, you could walk up and use that gold, you know, you could sell the gold watch and get some coin and then use that paper cash at like the Blue Con Bazaar. But if you've got a $100 bill, let's see, 5 to 20%, that $100 bill is only going to be worth $80 or um, 8 gold. Huh. Because one, one gold piece equals 10 Earth dollars. Okay, so basically they already taken care of that of of a, another way of making money. All right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because you know because uh, you know from for the most part at least in the last three four centuries the value of gold was about twenty dollars an ounce. It's only been in the recent years as it's shot up, and that's when that's when it stopped being tied as currency and just became independent of currency. That's when gold prices started rising. Uh, once the United States got off the gold standard, it got it basically started going up, started getting more expensive to get gold. Oh no, we determined on a previous podcast an ounce yeah. of gold is like twelve hundred dollars. Yeah, I remember the three of us sat there and doped this out, and I one of us Googled it, and I'm like, "Holy smoke!" Because that last I heard it was three hundred. Oh so, no, it's now thirteen hundred. Oh, okay, so it went up a little <laughs> bit more. Okay, yeah. yeah. It's not as high as it was back in the late 80s. It might, I think at one point it actually hit about 1500, but it's sort of kind of come down. Yeah. But, but yeah, so. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. But yeah. the fact that gold can be gotten from here quickly and sent over. Mm hmm. That's another way that the Bureau, why Bureau agents on Earth are rich. Not just because of alchemy and transmutation. It's because they got a whole... There are probably untapped veins of precious metals here in the second world because this world hasn't been damn strip-mined yet. Well, and this not discount alchemy and transmutation also. You know. Well, no, that's what I mean. But I mean, <laughs> if they wanted to sit there and preserve their magical power for other things, it's like, wait a minute, we've got a whole... If, if the, the geology is the same here... There's a whole untapped vein of gold in this location in the second world. 
Yeah, get and, and that's where you send the liaisons. Yeah, go set up a camp there so our miners can get all that gold. Yeah. And they bring it back, and yeah. Yeah, because so, looking at the prices for looking at where they're doing their pricing, yeah, it's pretty much being pegged to pre you know nineteenth century gold value, twenty dollars an ounce. You know, there thereabouts. Eight eight gold pieces for a hundred dollars? That's actually a little bit less than twenty dollars an ounce. Well, remember that that's the if you walk <laughs> in with paper money, a hundred dollar bill. BlueCon, they're going to sit there and want that twenty percent exchange rate. Yeah, you're you're also going to have to compare it to some prices, John, because yeah. twenty dollars for gold, when you know five mm-hmm. cents buys you an entire meal. Yeah, you know it's <laughs> it, it's comparable, you know, oh, yeah, to modern day prices. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Mary, did asked, you two have you two ever seen the movie Euro Trip? Um, not by name. I think I might have seen part of it. Where they. How much do and they're like stranded in Bulgaria? How much do we have? A dollar eighty-seven. The next scene you see is where they're in the lap of luxury, and the kid, seventeen, a cigar. He's in a robe and some cigar. Love that exchange rate <laughs> because now they have is a dollar eighty-seven, but in Bulgaria they're living like millionaires. Interesting right. enough, I'm looking at their price at the end, what, page two sixty-three. Uh, the prices are pretty much, you know, fishing gear, 15 pounds, $20. That's about right. A decent Okay, shape, well, a decent- Mr. Peterson apparently did his research then. Yeah. Wait a minute, $263. Look. Yeah, 263 So basically, yeah, it's it, it, the if it's... Oh, yeah, bingo, found it. Yeah, yeah. Um, what I'm looking at is that, yeah, they're, 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 they've tagged, he's tagged it to... 18th century gold prices? Well, because that's what a lot of this technology is. Remember, John, in the Second World, they're basically stuck at maybe Renaissance-level technology. Steam tech does not work. You're still working on cogs, gears, and pulleys. That's it. Yeah, you can have a clockwork device, but you're going to wind it. You can't use steam power to crank it unless you do something technomagic. So... A lot of this technology you're seeing here is stuff that would have worked, excuse me, pre-industrial revolution. Yeah. So the, so the prices are kind of tagged tagged around 17, late 1780s, 1790s. Yeah, look, but that's still, that's that's the very, very beginning of the steam age. Yeah. Because James, at, Watt, James Watt patented the steam engine, what, 17 what? 90 or 17. Yeah, right. So, I mean, that was, we're just heading into in D20 parlance PL4. And I say the prices are a bit 1960 because here, lunch lunch or breakfast at a restaurant, $6. Yeah. I only know one or two places where I actually get, I can get that and it's not very good and not very much. Yeah. So that's, 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 that's definitely a 1960s, 70s prices. So, yeah. But jeans are a hundred dollars, so yeah. I think first of all, jeans are hundred dollars. So anything imported is going to be expensive. Well, yeah, and I'll remember, John, if you read further back in the Second World Source book, designer jeans, soft drinks, and your typical American beer are considered status items here. If you're wearing, if you're wearing a pair of Levi's, you got a Yankees baseball cap, and you got a can of Bud in your hand, and you're in the Second World. You're like 
what we would consider the top two percent. You're you're a rich man. Yeah, you're you're considered swanky because those are status symbols because that's all first world stuff. And of course, once you get farther away from these bigger cities, especially New York, you start even heading down south or out into the Huron Wild. Yeah, you're kind of pegged as either a first worlder or a second worlder who's what's the term? Nouveau riche. Yeah. It was not uncommon amongst certain royalty that they were known uh, for how well-connected and how wealthy they were, how successful they were, that they never ate anything that was grown locally. It yeah. all was imported. Everything yeah. that they ate was imported. Yes. And, of course, the, the dwarf the dwarf in me moans and whines over them drinking bud because that's not real beer. Oh, no. No, no, no. Have you read... John, have you read about the Appalachian Dwarves in this book? Not yet. <laughs> oh, no. They got stuff called white lightning. It's sort of quasi-alchemical. Yeah, you're drunk, but you don't feel pain for like four hours or something like that. Uh, but and that's uh, also part of their initiation process for you to become a quote-unquote good old boy. In other words, you're brought into the family. I think we mentioned it last. I think we mentioned this last time. This is the, the you know the, the stuff the stuff from from the the white Latinum from there is being sold. You know, on the first world because hey, you know, after the, you know, because the magic still works. <laughs> oh no, magic items made in the second world because remember, I kind of have adopted the world resistance thing. That's why bureau agents have to use wands and stabs to cast better. Yeah. Magic items still work here. It's just the spell casting involved in magic items is what makes it harder to, to produce them. Yeah. But if you produce a magic item in the second one, you bring it to the first one. That's why rich people will sit there and buy cure potions and remove disease potions and scrolls. And they'll pay through the nose for it, and that's blue, and that's blue con and solstice bringing that stuff. That's the cross cross dimension trade that they do. And little blue scrolls and little blue scrolls for other problems. Oh. <laughs> I don't want to know what that. I don't even want to know what that spell is. Anyways. Now, there was something I wanted to bring up. Oh, yeah, the training that is in that is in 7. I mentioned fire combat training, interrogation group, and inspection. Now, let me get over to that. Okay, fire training, interrogation, inspection. Or fire combat is what they call it. You can get Cleric Level 4 Potions, Wizard Level 6 Arms and Armor. You can get courses to up your decks and con, uh, armor optimization, exploit cover, intensive firearm training, resistance training for reflex and will saves, and skill training and knowledge tactics and toughening, which I think gives you actually a natural armor bonus. Basically, you're, you're beat on until your skin gets tougher. Then interrogation, uh, Candle of Truth, Dimensional Shackles, Iron Bands of Bilar, which I changed, they changed the name from the Greyhawk version. Love Potion and a Truth Potion, and you get Ability Training Charisma, Resistance Training Will, Skill Training and Bluff, Diplomacy, Intimidation, and Sense Motive, 
And what was the third one? Inspection. Oh. Dust of appearance, gem of seeing, goggles of minute seeing, lantern of revealing, lens of detection, metal and mineral detection rod, x-ray vision ring. This is all stuff in the Pathfinder core rulebook and the DMG. And you can raise intelligence and wisdom, your reflex save, skill training, disabled device, investigate, and perception. So you can gain, and there's special training rules in the Second World Sourcebook. But basically, you can go for further training for your characters as a member of Seven to make you more effective. And you you spend gold or influence points. And remember, in the Second World, they have the 1,000 gold pieces equals one influence point. Influence point allows you to buy favors, buy positions, such as the ones I just mentioned, liaison and agent. And so... You can actually, if you role play it out and use the mechanics here in the setting, you can gain access to these magical items, to this training. Um, let's see what else. Yeah, potions, arms and armor, the various magic items. You can raise up, heck, between these three groups, you can raise up all your stats with strength. Dexcon, Intelligence, Wisdom, and Charisma all get ability training. Reflex and Will. So your fort save doesn't get opt. Well, let's see. Knowledge Tactics. Disable Device. And Perception. Bluff, Diplomacy, Intimidate, Sense Mode. Those are all fantastic skills for a Bureau agent to have. And from what I remember in the Bureau agent class, a lot of those are class skills anyways. So you're getting, depending on the gold pieces you spend, anywhere from plus one to plus three bonus for those skills. If you go and do these training, you know, it'd be like off camera. You do it in between adventures. You pay the, the gold piece amount or whatever. And your characters, while here in the second world, they'll be training to up all these things. Yeah, do a training montage, and there you go. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it'd be, uh, yeah, I see the toughening as, yeah, you're basically getting the crap kicked out of you by combat masters, and you gain even a plus one natural armor bonus, you know. Actually, when you said that, I, I reminded of the scene from the old TV series Kung Fu, where they're shoving their hands into the uh, hot, hot sand, I can see. Oh, Funny yeah. you mentioned that, John. Funny you mentioned that. Okay, I've mentioned in the second world that they have something called the war, and, and I mentioned it earlier, the warden powers, mm -hmm. based on dream, flesh, feral, rune, tone, pattern. For metal warden, and a lot of metal wardens come from Berlin, where, remember, in second world Europe, it's all steampunk, and they actually have steam engines and trains and actually steam-powered mecha and cannon blat, you know, cannons and firearms. And anyways, one of the things that you have to do in order to go through Metal Warden training is something called the forging. Now, you basically are sticking your hand in a fire for 13 seconds, and then once you pull it out, you dunk it in ice water for 13 seconds. Hmm. And that thing you mentioned from Kung Fu reminded me of that, and it is part of a situational uh, prerequisite for becoming a metal warden. Ah. And you have to make, like, a will save or you pass out, 
or just the fact that you have the Iron Will feat, which is a prerequisite for Iron or Metal Wardens anyways, allows you, yeah, you're going to be screaming, but you'll go through it. So you just reminded me when you mentioned that about Kung Fu, kind of what, you know, that was. And so, yeah, the, the being a Bureau 13 agent who gets transferred over to, into the, the division known as seven. It's not really a crap job because I mean, you're able to deal with the supernatural more openly. You get cool training that you get to do and you can actually role play it out and it's mechanically created in the second world source book. You deal with intrigue because you're dealing with, especially in second world New York, the whole concept of, okay, we have all these various power groups that are wanting to take over the city of runes now that the Imperial Legion has pulled out 90% of its forces. Or you're in Chicago and it's like, okay, now that we have all these Imperial Legion forces back here, there's a reason why they've turned all their armies inward. There's something going on here. Something came back with them from the Mississippi Valley War. And it's pretty much been implied that maybe a military commander got taken over by an undead or is now an undead. And so he's going to start, what is the word, fomenting and agitating at the Capitol. Now, stuff that happens at the Capitol is not going to really affect the city of Runes. Again, these great cities are like city-states. The only the Imperial Legion was just a presence there. The city of Runes is it's just it's it's its own place, and it really I mean yeah it has its own internal government, but even then the power of the rune kind of runs everything because you get one explosive rune, and if it's the size of a skyscraper, yeah, it's like that South Park meme. You're gonna have a bad day. And so you yeah, don't want to be at ground zero when that goes off. No, 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 no. So we're talking I'm, nuclear level explosive runes. Oh yeah, yeah. See, that's the thing with that much power concentrated in one place. You get one explosive rune and it goes off. Yeah, seven would end up having to do first responders type stuff. That's another that that just hit me just now, and I've been running this setting on and off now for. Well, the better part of a decade. So I'm, I'm wondering, you know, okay, so we have bureau agents going there, going to, you know, then doing things, and that's great. But how could you bring it into your bureau campaign? Say, like, I want to say, I want, I say, I've been thinking, okay, let let me explore what's happening in in, in Seattle, both Seattle's. You know, here's Team Fremont, and all of a sudden someone knocks on the door, you know, and it turns out to be the Havrek the Havrek 7 agent from Seattle. Okay, let me... Yeah, there is... Yeah, there's an office in Seattle. Okay. They shift gate over because let's say something happened, something escaped from the second world and they're tracking it down. They know, okay, now, it's in Seattle. Here's the, oh, qu- here's, the qu- here's the question, though. How open is the Bureau about the second world? Uh, I would think probably most bureau agents would be a need-to-know basis. Okay. 
It's so, just, remember, it's compartmentalized. It's like if you're a traveling team, mm-hmm. if let's say you're in the Great Plains, remember there are no Great Plains-based seven offices. They are in yeah. L.A., New York, Chicago, Seattle, and D.C. If you're the Topeka, Kansas Bureau team, you need not know that the second world exists. Yeah. Now, if you're in one of those five cities that I mentioned, if you're, if you're Seth Green, the head of Team Fremont, a regional team, you probably know exactly you know where. Seth, no, I'm sure that. Remember, Team <laughs> Fremont. Yeah, you, you, we've all agreed that Team Fremont is the Seattle team. They know about well, Seven and Shiftgate, and they've probably got more than a few shipments of stuff from that office. Well, at least Seth might know. The others may not know. I mean, it, may, it could be that, you know, okay, I just said, need to know. They don't know that, you know, the shift gate happens to be in the warehouse. Would be a great place to put it because it's secure and it's, you know, it's worry about can you explain to the drunk why'd you peer out of the wall? You know. Well, no, the shift gate, remember, John, remember what the shift gate is. It is a globular <clears throat> spherical gate that basically manifests within a 10-foot round steel cage with a hatch that leads in. Ah. You get in that cage, you activate the ship gate, and the two spaces in that same dimension, remember, they're coterminous. It's in the same place in Seattle as it is in Second World, and they ship places. So if you put people in the, the first, let's say Team Fremont needs to go to Second World Seattle. Mm-hmm. They all climb in the ship gate. Someone activates it. Usually they're going to try to coincide. Okay, we're going to bring over some equipment. Mm-hmm. So Team Fremont disappears and the equipment appears. Team Fremont ends up in the second world ship gate. And it's a 10-foot steel cage either way. 10-foot spherical steel cage. All right. Page 257 in the book. Yeah. So it's large and hard to hide and would need a secure place to keep it. Yes. yes. And that- well, remember, Seven owns all of the places that ship gates that they have are held okay. in both worlds, except for D.C., because there's no Washington, D.C. to speak of. There's no, but there's nothing stopping them from, well, you know, sharing the rent, so to speak, on a facility. I mean, you know, any supply, you know, basically the, the team Fremont. One thing is they have to do is take care of this, of of the uh, a, a major supply dump for for roaming teams. You know, they basically they have a warehouse on the waterfront. And yeah, the, and in the basement is the low level is the low level storage facility. I wonder if there's not a large gate in the middle of that sucker. Who's <laughs> to say that team Fremont could be? the team that has access to the ship gate. Since all this stuff is canon now because of the open license. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, I've never actually delved into it, but I'd be, you know, if I did, I'd have to sort of, because I have, like I said, I've had continuing players. People, you know, at least on the, uh, when I play the cons, people play the same characters every time. Yeah. So I have to sort of kind of, you know, okay, now I'm going to tell you something that you already that your characters know about already, you know, and say, "Oh, okay, so new change? No, no, it's been there forever, but just that we'd never actually, you know, right. decided to mention it." Well, I th- I think it would be better then to have that. There is a seven team in Seattle. It's just Team Fremont 
they're they're considered federal bureau agents. They're just of this particular division of the bureau mm-hmm. that is concerned with. Okay, well, why seven? Why are you here? What's going on? Well, you see, and then you open the door to the shift gate. Ah. Get in and you find out, and then they meet the counterparts on the seven on the second world side, where you might be running into you know a dwarf, a gnome, yeah. a couple of elves, and you know yeah. some other weird demi-human. Yeah, I mean, basically, I, I put you know I I put the warehouse in a in a location that's been there since the nineteen twenties. The warehouse has been there forever, and okay, you know it's a great place, and you know, and it has a. Basement, and it also has the underwater dock for the submarine. Yeah, <laughs> you know, just just stuff they have in there. It also has the colony of of intelligent rats. Nice, and the and the borrowers living in the walls. They work together. Okay. Oh, the borrowers like the littles. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it, it, magic leaks out. That's how the rats came about, and the borrowers just moved in because they were invited by an an agent back in the nineteen thirties. Oh, okay. And then he died. Ugh. And then didn't tell anyone about it. They've been sending him letters. He has a magic mailbox they can send letters to. I'm going, and, they, and I remember ended the adventure going, where are those letters going? And they send to him. Is he, anyone received those letters? No. Do we need to do a seance? Probably. <laughs> Poor guy in heaven, and there he is getting letters from the from the from the from the borrowers. Okay, so yeah. the Seattle, yeah, so Team Fremont would know of, mm-hmm. the, at least the, the leader, Seth Green, would know of yeah. the seven team. Yeah. They're monitoring the shift gate. Yeah. And that's probably where they get a lot of the magic items. It's like requisition. Yeah, yeah go to the warehouse. Yeah. Okay, or or, yeah. or if, they, if they do keep their own fa- separate facilities, there's probably a uh, another another place. I mean, there's plenty of places in Seattle that haven't, you know, they're still there and been, been, been there since the, the Great Fire. You know, and then that's quite possible. That's where their shift gate is, and uh, yeah. so offices because they basically it's more along line of okay, this is the, this is the place we can move to that we don't, we won't be seen when we come out of the gate. So, and here's the thing, John, mm-hmm. about Seattle and L.A. Mm-hmm. and the Central Empire. Yep. The Central Empire pretty much goes from the Eastern Seaboard to the Rockies. Ah. L.A. and Seattle are technically not part of the Central Empire. They would be like their own little city-states. So that means you're not going to have Imperial Legions there dealing with that. You're not going to have any of that. They are pretty much a self-sufficient area. Hmm. So, yeah, that's all... Seattle, Second World Seattle, they're on their own kind of. Here's the question: Do the shift? Because I'm not seeing it on the. I got a link to it. Says, but are, are the shift gates? Do they have to be exactly? You know, that is, if I have a shift gate on the first floor of a building, it's got to be in the same more or less location. Yes, the exact physical space in the separate dimensions. So here's the thing: is, is probably that makes it makes it even more interesting for for them because they probably have to d- dig a hole. Because most of Seattle used to be up on hills. I, I use the, I, and I emphasize the word used to be. All those hills were literally flushed down with ma- massive hoses. They dropped wow. a, a good, oh, I would say a good 40 feet in some places, 40 to 50 feet in some That's places. That's funny. I'm not, I, 
And that's funny. I don't know if Mr. Peterson knew about that, which means that would be something that a either a native or a longtime resident of Seattle, such as yourself, would know. And if a GM didn't know that, it would be that like, 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 damn it. <laughs> yeah. So it means if there's a shift gate and it has to go and, and then it was raised a story and a half. After they would have to do something like that then. That that would be when they're con- when they're doing the cross the cross world phone mm-hmm. and they're like, Oh they, crap. We they, didn't think of that. So yeah. I mean basically <laughs> they, the plans, we gotta do it over. Yeah. yeah so basically if there is a is a shift gate, they would have to have you know after the after everything got washed down, they'd have to then oh well this happened in the late uh, late eighteen eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties to turn of the century. Uh, I would say these shift gates are relatively easily moved. The final third of the 20th century is when uh, these things were made. In that case, then then, then what ha- probably happened then is that they, they, they say, okay, so what part of Seattle hasn't really changed over years? Oh, that's the Pioneer District. Ah. And there's an underground section? Yep. Okay, how far down, how far down is it? 40 feet. So we dig a shaft. <laughs> yeah, basically they and with magic, you know, a move earth spell could do that easily. Get yourself a dwarven art dwarven miner. He goes, he had no problem. I dig you a hole. Oh yeah. Well, remember, as I said, the dwarves here, you know, they're that Appalachian type. So it's like I tell you what, boy, just give me some white lightning and get a pickaxe. I'm good to go. Yeah. Actually, and I apologize to any of our listeners in the Appalachian area for me trying to even attempt an Appalachian accent. <laughs> and I apologize to our Scottish listeners. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, and it's also actually when you pick actually you need a shovel because it was all glacial till. That's why they were able to wash it away. Yeah. You know? Yeah. There's but the- yeah, so as far as being a Bureau 13 agent and being transferred to this agency known as Seven, which, as I said, I saw too many similarities when I got this book and decided to bring it into Bureau 13. And as I said, it's canon because of the open open fiction agreement. It's on that first page. As soon as you crack open the hard copy book, it's right there in a gray box in the lower right-hand corner. Oh, on it's, the It's on open the, content. It's open content. Yeah. But it's for the game setting, basically, except for the words Second World Simulations and Second World Sourcebook, the entire book is open content. Hmm. And with that, with permission from Mr. Peterson printed there in the book, I decided to start integrating things from this setting into Bureau 13 canon. Another contribution I made to when I headed up Bureau 13 OGL. So, as I said, when I saw Habrex 7, I'm like, this is just a division of the Bureau. Hmm. They just have a different job, but it's the same group. The same type of, you know, black ops, American secret conspiracy group. Yeah, but like I said, you know, for GMs out there who don't want to actually have the characters roll up a bunch of new characters just for, for, you know, for their Bureau 13 game, there's got to be ways to integrate. Either they have to go to the, you know, Basically, the the ha- the Habrick Seven team is kind of short today in Seattle, and we need your help. Can you come over and give us a hand? Yeah, well, in that case, then you'd be given the agent status. You know, between mm-hmm. liaison and agent, you're agents if you're Bureau Thirteen agents. It's already you're mm-hmm. you're hardwired in, so to speak. Yeah, and just you 
you're going to find out you're in a much different world because with worlds with high first world influence, mm-hmm. you're going to see it's going to look mostly familiar because you're going to be seeing what would be their rich people with jeans and baseball caps and trying to mold magic to bring modern conveniences. But as soon as you get away from these cities, you're going to be in a, You're in a totally different world. It's going to look like a fantasy campaign. Yeah. But you're like, wait a minute, I'm in central Washington state and it looks like I'm in a D and D game. So looking at the shift cost, it's about $50,000 to move that 10 foot radius sphere. They don't do it. They don't do it on a whim. So you might actually get a phone call than a uh, someone knocking on the door at that point. Because you know, let's, let's save our money because it's going to cost us fifty thousand dollars to move them there, and another fifty thousand. Well, that's why they use the shift gates. No, that's the shift gate. That's the shift gate cost. That's the shift gate cost. Fifty thousand dollars. Okay, you're looking at the favor for. No, no, I'm looking the, at page two fifty eight. Shift gates typically transpose a ten foot radius. Of sp- volume of space. Each such shift costs $50,000 in material components. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. It's something they don't do lightly. <laughs> no, they don't. Usually uh, the organizations that use shift gates for trade have specialists trained in making the most use of the space available. Since shift gates transpose a radius of space, organizations make certain to use both the space above floor and below it. One common method of doing this is create a spherical chamber and lace it with a metal framework and catwalk. This generates roughly 1,300 cubic feet of available volume. However, the volume is transposed, so there's actually twice that space available per shift since both the second world side can be filled with goods to be shipped to the first world and vice versa for the first world site. This volume then costs roughly $25 per cubic foot. That's cheap for shipping shipping costs. Yeah. Typically, owners of ship gates try to make a gross profit of at least $100 per cubic foot. For example, jeans require about one cubic cubic foot per 10 pairs. If the owners can sell first world jeans for $10 per pair over the first world cost, i.e. $60-$70, then trade in first world jeans will be justified and this commodity will be available. Accordingly, the primary factor in first second world trade is the price to volume ratio. The cost charts in this section and elsewhere in the book take the presence of first and second world trade into account. For instance, much cheaper than in the core rule books since they can be produced more efficiently in the first world than shipped across the interstitial gulf. So here's a here's a here's a here's a thought. Say there's not much trade between Seattle between the Seattles. They can get away with a smaller gate, say five foot. Well no, the spell ah. itself manifests that it has to be that way. No no it says that typic- typically trade. transpose a ten foot volume of space. Well, no, that the, doesn't. That the, doesn't. That, that, doesn't that doesn't mean it is exactly ten feet. It means it's typically ten feet. Well, no. From what I remember of, and let me look Second World Spells to see if I can find the shift what, gate. Because there's there's a there's something shift gate, or it's a spell, or it's a power, or something in the book that basically says it is a ten foot sphere that transposes between the dimensions. And then they says that, typically that, is ten foot. It says it's a constructed device. So if you can change the size, and the, then you can actually make the device hmm. fit. You know, so basically you have a you have a machine, a magic machine, basically that you feed your material components into, hit the button, and pff, there you are. 
Yeah, I'm trying to see here. I remember seeing something about the actual... Yeah, there's shift points on page 124, which is probably actually page 125. I mean, finding that their page counts, their page numbers are off by one. One twenty-seven, one twenty-six. Shift points. Yep. Uh, no, that's something else. That's for wardens. Uh, yeah, that's 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 for the flush warden. Okay. Basically, allowing you to shape change. Yep. And then there's mind pro. That must be the mental warden. Oh yeah, I'm in the wardens. I'm in the wardens. No, I won't be at the spells. But yeah, so. But anyway, yeah. if, if, there's a min- if, there's, if there's a minimum size, then that's what it is. But if you can make it smaller, it makes it cheaper to use. Well, yeah, yeah. But usually that's why they'll try to reconcile, okay, we need to send a ship, we need to send some bureau agents over to supplement mm-hmm. the New York team. Okay, well, that's good. We got a bunch of magic items that we need to send over. So, yeah, just fill it up and hit the button. I can actually see it. I can see it now. Say, okay, and and okay. So you guys, you six agents. There you go. There's still plenty of space here. Hold these boxes of blue jeans. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> well, it'd be it'd be things that the bureau could send them, like spy glasses, magnifying glasses, yeah. surgical kits, things that the bureau can get no, and no. send, and that can be used in the second world. How many influence points would you get giving some bo- some crime lord boss a bunch of brand new blue jeans and, and uh, the latest from Paris? That'd be figured out by the GM, but let's <laughs> face it, if you were to say, okay, we'll, we'll crime bot, we'll do, okay, let, let's look at the organizations here, because there's a couple of gangs in New York. There is the Red Society. They are the mob. Yeah. They are the creme de la creme of organized crime in Second World New York. And don't then tell me Habak Seven doesn't know what the what the leader of the the mob boss's uh, mall's dress size is. Uh, that actually would be found out. There is a Baroness, a half elf, mm-hmm. Baroness Linda Michaels, who might know that yeah. because there is a favor basically where you can make fashions. So, yeah, that would be known. Oh, let's see. The Red Society's, the dawn of the Red Society is wife's dress size. The Baroness would know that. See, that's favors. That's using all the various yeah. favors and influence yeah. and, and domains of all the organizations in the second world. If you got the right connections, yeah, you're going to be taking like maybe a minus 30 to your skill. But if you can sit there and get that information. Yeah. That's just Habrex and has to operate amongst in here, and if you can make nicey nice with the people who would normally not be nicey nice, yeah, it's you know it's the equivalent of nylons with Germans in World well, War Two. Well, here's the thing: you remember <laughs> the four people, the four domains that Habrex Seven has connection with in Second World New York: ACI, the construction firm, mm-hmm. the executives in the blue conglomerate, the captains in the city watch and the mayor's office. Now, those domains also have connections, and you make connections through connections, networking. Yeah. But you take minuses to whatever role. Let's say it's, um, well, investigate, again, we'll use perception, you know, the search. But you can spend influence points to alleviate those negatives. Am I correct? Uh, no influence nope. points. You still need to spend them in order to do the favor. Ah, okay. 
because you have to pay access costs than the implementation costs. So that's why you may have a low wealth score or low goal piece, but you have high influence. Okay. You've learned to manipulate your fortune into mojo where you can. Yeah. But what I'm saying, and, and, it, it would behoove them, you know, especially with the Hadrock 7. Okay. Yeah. We can, we, you know, we can get spy glasses, but we also want some, the latest, the latest in Kelvin Klein, you don't make any anymore. Whatever the current one is, we want, we want, we want at least uh, five cubic feet of that. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. And the Bureau, of course, can get them easily. They'll get them in mm-hmm. 24 hours and just, you know, throw it in the ship yeah. gate. Oh, no. Throwing blue jeans around to, to gain influence points? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's that's gather information. That's bribe because you just uh, make a wealth DC on mm-hmm. how much the jeans are. Yeah. And that's that's yeah. the and same I- as wealth cost on a gather information or a diplomacy check. And the reason I bring this up is because, you know, you're being, okay, we need you to, we need, you know, for you folks to come to our Seattle, the second world Seattle. But before you come over, make sure you, you run by Costco and pick up, oh, six, seven cases of uh, cores. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. As I said, <laughs> if, if you, Bureau agents getting stuff easily from the first world mm-hmm. because of the ship gates in Seattle, L.A., New York, yeah. and uh, Chicago. That's how a lot of shipping is done. Yeah. If you are in the second world and you want to get something to the first world, you get it to a ship gate and then get it on normal shipping. It gets there incredibly quick. And that's one of the, another one of the favors in the book is first world shipping. And I think that might be a Habrek. Yeah. And there's people, and there are people in in Seattle. There, I mean, there's the retired agents who run the the little uh, the uh, uh, the the EO Curiosity Shop on the waterfront, which is also a, a low level facility. Uh, who can probably easily go? Okay, yeah, we'll we'll wait till the thing shifts, and then we'll take the stuff out of there. You know, we know we'll put over and we'll put in storage, and then we'll make it get to the warehouse. See, we yeah. got first world transit. Let me look yeah. that up here, real. Yeah, but yeah, but basically, this is you know, it wouldn't just be going over there because they'll take advantage of the fact that they can, they can, you can ship stuff at the same time, you know. You oh, know. you got first world transit. That is, I'm trying to. Major organizations have fairly regular contact with the first world. In order to facilitate this, they have both permanent gates and plane shifting individuals for easy transit between the first and second worlds. With this favor, you can arrange transport of some type to the first world. This may take part as moving as part of a cargo load via ship gate. Or having an individual with the right powers take you and perhaps some others across personally. Most of these organizations own the property on the far side of the gate through a holding company or other subsidiary organization. Yeah, dummy corporations hold these warehouses on first on the bureau. Earth. Now, yeah. you say permanent gates. Are these like they're always open? You just walk through? I would say, um, well, they might have. Yeah, well, remember, if the bureau is going to find a portal that's been standing there. They're going to lock down that property. They'll just bring in the military and say, yeah, we need to lock down this territory. This is, you know, now U.S. government property. Oh. And they'll just erect some structure around the portal to hide it from view. Yeah. Because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of re- reminded of the, uh, what was it, the um, Fringe? With the Fringe Yeah, Division? the series on Fox, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because toward the end there, they had the, the folks in the future, spoilers, uh, were using gates to move stuff from the future to the past. And that sort of reminds me of that. That's sort of because they were standard size and they they were on a regular schedule. And yeah, it would be a, it was a gate to the future. 
and a gate to the past, and they were moving. They, were, they would move stuff to the past. Hmm. Let's see here. But anyway, yeah. Oh, here we go. It's a control gate. Is that it? The yeah, gate? the gate warden power. Yeah, that's, that's where I knew there was a some type <laughs> of spell. Or yeah, it's in the there. If you buy the full Second World PDF, there's like an additional part at the end called the Pact System. And there is the Gate Warden power. And one of the Gate Warden bindings is Control Gate that basically accesses the Shift Gate power. Now, every single binding in the Second World Sourcebook and in the Gate, the Pact System, the power level is the spell level. You can make it as a magic spell. That's how the Technomagic cell phones are made because you're using the Lightning Warden powers to, oh, look, the cell phone. And they just make put these magic items all over Manhattan, and they are owned by House Usher. Now, let's say somebody goes around and tries to vandalize one of these magic items that disrupts cell phone service. You don't think House Usher is going to send somebody after them to hunt them down? And remember, you have magic. Which means, ah. With divination, they'll find out who did it. House Usher will hire people to hunt that vandal down. It's the Create Nexus spell, looks like. Oh, it requires a shift gate. Ah, so you need a shift gate to use the Create Nexus. All right. So does it mean you would have to have a gate warden operate at least on one side? Well, no, that's the thing with the pack system here. And let me get down to gate warden okay. and do this. All right, all right. Okay, what, what one is it again? Oh, here uh, we go. Okay, shift gate. Here's the spell. Okay, uh, range 10 feet area, 10 feet radius, burst center on you. Yeah, see, I told you it was... It's it's but that's the spell. Inherent. But that's the well, spell. The power it's it's made from the gate warden. Remember, the, all these mm -hmm. bindings can be turned into spells. So yeah, the I mean, spell items. Yeah. it's automatically a ten foot globe. Okay, uh, it's pretty cheap though. It's only ten thousand binding cost is only ten thousand gold pieces. Anything. that's ten IP to bind it to you. Yeah, the spell costs. Remember, power level eight. It's equivalent to an eighth level spell. It's uh, like plane shift or gate. Okay. That's why it's considered power level eight. That's an eighth level spell, which means normally minimum 15th level wizard would have to be able to cast this. Yeah. But make sure, because then I see other versions like Greater Nexus, you can actually make it bigger, 30 feet. No, Greater Nexus, what, what the Nexus, well, let's see, Greater Nexus. No, no. Create Nexus and Greater Nexus, that's basically high. Within a 30-foot radius, I want to mix um, laws of natures and physics of worlds together. Ah. Oh, I'm in a fantasy world. In this 30-foot radius, firearms work. Well, I'm looking at the description, like Create Nexus. It requires a shift, it requires shift gate. No, that just re it requires that you need the binding to do it. Oh. That's it. And this is this if merges. You, you the, can make that spell separate. Well, it says this merges the an area of two worlds into a single location. The two areas overlap each other within the region. From inside, you can see a, an amalgam of two worlds. Yes, and then you also read a metaphysical nexus. Instead of merging the world, you may simply import the world rules from one other plane into the region. In mm. that case, no overlapping occurs, but it's like. Hi, within this 30-foot radius, I can use my Tommy gun and fill you full of lead. Ah, and does that also mean on the corresponding other world, you can now use magic in that area? 
if you're on that magical world and you do Nexus and say, yeah, within this 30-foot radius, I'm going to hit you with a fireball. Well, you're merging two, You're merging the world, so the two worlds merging. Well, no, the metaphysical Nexus, you're just bringing the properties of that other world to, into this world. That's uh, all you're doing. Okay, okay, I see, I see. Yeah, okay, unlike the... But that, that's the whole purpose of... Um, yeah, create Nexus requires Shiftgate. That's just if you're being a gate warden. If you are using Shiftgate as a spell to make your own Shiftgate... That's a magic item. You go by the magic item creation rules in, you know, the DMG or the Pathfinder Core rulebook. But it sounds like the the next the the, the non metaphysical version is actually merging two different worlds into one location. So yes. do you get to choose which one you go back with? Uh yeah, you could end up you could end up going from one world to another, I think. Well, leaving the, leaving the area of a nexus returns you to your native world unless you specifically try to do otherwise. In that case, you have to make a will save DC 18. Oh, I see it. Yeah, yeah. So and they, then gate wardens can freely travel between the worlds merged by a nexus, but that's because they're gate wardens. Okay. Yeah, we're kind of diverting because we were talking about shift gates. But yeah, a shift gate, seven owns the property on both sides. They use it cross-dimensional trade. And for seven, it's often going to be Cheaply made first world items for magic items and other Gugas. things that can be made in the second world. Yeah, and they shift them over. Because so, the reason, the reason, the reason, I, because the reason I, w- I went into this is because, well, it said typically, and I'm rules lawyer on this because if you meant it's only ten feet, then say ten feet. Don't say typically because typically means you can make them either smaller or bigger than. Okay, no, as I said, it was, I knew that there was something in the rules, and it was that gate warden ship gate binding, where it is 10 feet no matter what. Remember, but, but remember, there's when you make a magic item, sometimes the rules break. You, you're saying that, that, that Blue Con has a 10-foot gate that ships through a bunch of stuff through, or do they have a 20-foot gate? If they did, they would have had to really alter the spell. Okay. But usually, they ten feet just seems to be the default, and they'll just go with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying because you know, if they didn't want anyone arguing over this, because like I am right now, they shouldn't have said typically. Right. Okay. Then that's that's the problem. That's the fault of Mr. Peterson and his wording. But yeah, Blue Gate has shift gates. Solstice has shift gates, and they own the property on their side because both Blue Con and Solstice International are cross-dimensional. They both operate on Bureau 13 Earth and on the second world. And they're expensive to operate, so the, the Hebrek in Seattle, in second world Seattle, probably doesn't fire those up unless they absolutely have to. Well, yeah, and then that's then they use cross-dimensional communication saying, okay, we need to do, on this date, we're moving over some stuff. Okay, well, on this date, we need to move over stuff. Okay, we'll just do it on the same day and... And there's probably Habrick agents in Seattle, First World, uh, just because you need someone on, the, on both sides to keep, you know, security. Yes. Basically, Habrick, if anything, in the second, in the First World, they're just basically holding on the property for ship gates. Habrick 7 mostly operates in the second world, even though they say the whole thing of 7, what they say, a few score people. And let's see, a score is what? 20. A few scores, or maybe what, 60 people altogether. Haberex 7 is not that big of an organization. It's basically they're manning shift gates and doing occasional 
Intel recon around their various cities. And for all we know, they're and you said they're bureau agents, so these are you know specialist agents who basically, yeah, we're not field agents, and we're not out there. What we really are, we are well, we're quartermaster corps. Yeah, a good way to describe it. But I mean, the New York one, New York, Chicago, they are doing intel. So they have a few intel agents there, but mostly they're just these bases, yeah, that they're shipping goods back and forth. Yeah, Seattle, you know, great. more likely they're shipping receiving and a little bit of security, and they're not really full-fledged field agents. They're basically filling the role of, well, yeah, we're here to just make sure that no one breaks into the building and steals anything. Yeah. You know, that's pretty much what they are, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, if you want to ship over... Mm-hmm. If you okay, let, we we can wrap this up because we yeah yeah it's getting late yeah yeah all right so let me just wrap this up with a nice little bow here all right playing a bureau thirteen agent in the second world involves would most likely involve the use of this organization calling itself Seven now possibly either by using the aforementioned shift gate or having been exiled over and joining Seven that way, or playing in the second world setting and being a native and finding Seven, allows you to do intel, recon, intrigue and espionage in the various organizations of the second world, especially second world New York, the city of runes. And it allows as I have done with adding the second world into Bureau 13 canon, a new facet in which to play Bureau 13 Stalking the Night Fantastic, especially through the OGL version. As I said, the second world source book is available at the onebookshelf.com sites, which is drivethroughrpg.com and rpgnow.com. And I believe you can still buy the hard copy edition at noblenight.com. And that's N-O-B-L-E-K-N-I-G-H-T dot com for Noble Knight Games. I believe it's probably like nineteen ninety five for the book. And it's like a almost a 300-page book. As I said, I highly recommend this book for any type of D20 cross-planar gaming because Mr. Peterson nailed it as far as bringing rules from one setting into another, like defense bonuses from D20 Modern for OGL fantasy characters and getting rid of them and the influence rule setting and also the second world setting in and of itself. It's intriguing. If you read it, you're going to find a lot of things that Mr. Peterson linked with real world things. I even found something that's akin to an autistic person in there. If you read the Schwan H S U A N, I look at it and go, that's an Aspie. So as I said, Playing a Bureau 13 agent in the second world setting allows for a whole new facet of stalking the night fantastic in an earth very much like our own, yet very different. We will have more for you, but until then. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun.
This is Richard Tahoka. Wait till you see what's coming next. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at Tri-Tech Games. And if you don't, we'll be after your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav from the Travcast. Listen to me Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on listen.dementiaradio.org, colon 8027.